Good morning to you, and happy Mother's Day, too. In 1989, the iconic rock band Queen captured the world's attention with, I want it all, I want it all, I want it all, and I want it now, followed by a rather commanding electric guitar riff. There's something bound up in the heart of man when it comes to money. You can listen to virtually any genre of music, and you'll notice that the theme of money will come up again and again. From, from the classic rock of ACDC's Money Talks to Puff Daddy and the families, it's all about the Benjamins. And our Lord Jesus saw money as central and seminal, not to the eternal, but as a bellwether indicating the true allegiance of our heart at any given moment. We can tell ourselves, well, Jesus has our heart, but our wallets often tell a different story entirely. And so in the middle of Jesus' most famous sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, our Lord wisely warned those who heard, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. Verse 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now today we're in 1 Corinthians 16, and as we've noted previously in our journey through 1 Corinthians, the, the, the second half of 1 Corinthians is Paul's answer to specific questions posed by the Corinthian congregation. And each question is marked out in a section by Paul's use of the phrase, now concerning such and such, and so forth. And, and so we have in the book, now concerning food, sacrifice to idols, or now concerning spiritual gifts. In chapter 16, Paul gets to the fifth of these congregational questions, and that's why our text begins with, now concerning the collection for the saints. You see, since the Corinthians had questions about the collection, and since the Holy Spirit included God's answer in Holy Scripture, today's text offers biblical direction regarding kingdom collections. Biblical direction regarding kingdom collections. And so I want to invite you to turn with me in the Word of God to 1 Corinthians 16. We'll just be looking at the first four verses of that passage today. And as you turn in the word of the Lord, let's turn in the Lord of that word and ask him to bless our time in his text today. Lord Jesus, we invite you to teach us. We believe what your word says, that you've given us everything for life and godliness. And we know that one of the very good things you've given us is your word, which is a lamp unto our feet. And so I pray today from four slender verses where your spirit answered questions to a confused congregation 
giving biblical direction regarding kingdom collection, I pray that in these four verses, we might see a multitude of biblical truth that would blow away our misconceptions, preconceptions, traditions, emotions, and other errors. And instead, we would have a rock-ribbed confidence in your plan in regards to this matter. I admit, Lord, that preaching on giving is always uncomfortable, and yet I come today asking that you would help me to share your word through your spirit, your way, and it would form your people in this matter. We pray this in the name of Jesus, whom we love. Amen. The word of God in 1 Corinthians 16, beginning at verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints. As I also directed the churches in Galatia, so you are also to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put aside and something and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. As we carefully and patiently and indeed meticulously attempt to mine this uh, passage exegetically, we're going to find that there are rich biblical principles that spring forth from a single word or a small phrase. But before we get into those minutiae, I don't want us to miss the, the, the forest for the trees. I want us to take our first point in totality from all four of these verses God has given on biblical direction regarding kingdom collection. And the first point is simply this. Biblical giving is a biblical reality. Biblical giving is a biblical reality. There, there's no way to really run away from this. This is all that this text deals with. It, it, if there was only a human writer to Holy Scripture, that is, if the Holy Spirit wasn't the ultimate author, we wouldn't, wouldn't probably have this part of the text. Uh, you and I would have been sorely tempted to end this epistle with the soaring rhetoric that we saw at the end of chapter 15. Because after delivering one of the most stirring of Scripture's vistas on the glories of the resurrection, God's Word jarringly shifts to a much more mundane matter. I want you to listen again at this transition. Listen and let it sink in. After saying, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But Thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. After all of that, the Bible abruptly and surprisingly shifts 
to now concerning the collection for the saints. Why is this surprising shift happening? And the answer is because biblical giving is a biblical reality. In God's mind, therefore in God's word, the the loftiest realms of theological thought are intimately and intrinsically wedded to practical matters put forth in the most practical of ways. For God, in the mind of God, in the heart of God, for God, taking care of impoverished believers in in some faraway region is every bit as important as the most electrifying of truths about the age to come. Remember, for God, according to James, true religion is taking care of the widow and the orphan in their time of need. Sound doctrine ought to produce sound living. And, And so it is in the mundane where we struggle to maintain the central calling of every Christian. Whether we eat or drink, we do all that we do for the glory of God. And so, if you were with me this Sunday and you had the bulletin in front of you that we always have in front of you, you you would see that, that, that Calvary's bulletins are laid out with this in mind. Each aspect of our service is, is, is viewed through the biblical lens of its biblical goal to worship the Lord Jesus. Uh, we open with worship through praise. We, we have worship through prayer. We have worship through the Word. We have worship through informing. But in between worshiping through prayer and worshiping through preaching, we have this thing called worshiping through giving. Why? Because Biblical giving is a biblical reality. The offertory is not some uncomfortable intrusion or or carnal insertion in the midst of our service. The offering is part of our biblical worship. And so if biblical giving is a biblical reality, what does biblical giving look like? What does biblical giving look like? It's an excellent question, and it brings us to point two in our passage today. Point two is this. Biblical giving involves regularity. Biblical giving involves regularity. The Bible says in verse two, on the first day of the week, very specific, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so there will be no collecting as I come. Now, I want you to remember for a second, when did the early church meet? Well, very early on in church history, despite centuries of Jewish Sabbath-keeping, always on the last day of the week, the predominantly Jewish early church broke with thousands of years of inviolable tradition and astoundingly worshipped instead on the first day of the week. You see, Christians very early began worshiping on Sunday, what the Bible calls the Lord's Day. John says as much in Revelation 1.10. In Revelation 1.10, the Apostle John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day. Well, what's the the Lord's Day? It was the day Christians met together to worship Jesus especially and collectively. Luke says as much in Acts 20 and verse 7. On the first day of the week, 
When we were gathered together to break bread, they were having church, Paul talked with them, intending to depart the next day, and he prolonged his speech into midnight. You see, Paul was preaching in the church at Troas in that context. And the question is, when did they have church in Troas? They had church on Sunday, on the Lord's Day, on the first day of the week. It was not on the seventh day of the week. And there are some saints that are quite adamant that it should be the seventh day. And they are biblically incorrect. We love them, but their insistence is not scriptural. Sunday is the Lord's day because it is the day that our Lord Jesus resurrected. Flip for a second to the left of Corinthians, back to the Gospels, back to the Gospel of John. I would like for you to go for just a moment to the Gospel of John, John chapter 20 specifically. John chapter 20 and verse 1. John chapter 20 and verse 1 is talking about Resurrection Sunday, the day the Lord arose. It's a passage we read on Easter. And the Bible says on John chapter 20 and verse 1, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark, and she saw the stone had been taken away from the tomb. And so she ran, and she went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. And she said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they had laid him. The tomb was empty on Sunday, the first day, because that is the Lord's day. It is the Lord's day because it is when the first fruits of eternal resurrection enter the theological equation. There had been some resurrected, but not eternally. They died again. Here was the first fruits of Jesus Christ resurrecting, and it was going to be a permanent and eternal resurrection. And so in our passage, verse 2, on the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. So that means that biblical giving involves regularity. Our natural tendency, our, our human emotions, is to regulate giving to, to spontaneity. Spontaneity only. And yet the Bible calls us to biblical giving being done with regularity. you got to remember the ancient people referred to in our passage 2,000 years ago, those people were mostly paid how? They were mostly paid at the end of the day. They were paid daily. Hence, Jesus' injunction to pray, give us this day our daily bread, because people were generally day laborers. And yet those day laborers were supposed to do something diligently and regularly. They were to store up all week from, from what they had, whatever God had provided, and lay aside a particular portion that they conscientiously consecrated back to the Lord. And they were to give it on the Lord's day. Now, we live in a different society. We're 2,000 years later. Uh, our paychecks tend to come to us from direct deposit automatically. Many of us don't get paper checks at all. Uh, we are often paid weekly or bi-weekly or monthly. However our pay is disseminated, it ought to be invested in God's kingdom regularly. Not haphazardly, not sporadically, but regularly. And that brings us to point three in our text today. 
Biblical giving involves intentionality. Biblical giving involves intentionality. Look at our text here. Now concerning the collection of the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you are also to do. On the first day of the week, each of you, now here it is, is to put something aside and store it up. Put something aside and store it up. That was an intentional decision. It was a conscious consecration. It was an action that required diligence and obedience. They were to actively set something aside so when Sunday came, they had something to give. Now, it's, it's sorely tempting to give God our surpluses. After every other bill has been paid, we get around to Jesus. But, but unavoidably, the biblical pattern in both testaments is that we ought to give God our first fruits and not our cast-offs and leftovers. Oh, we are to give God our best and not simply the rest. And that means that biblical giving, well, that's going to require intentionality on the part of the biblical giver. Now, what was true for the church in Galatia was also true for the church in Corinth. And what was true for the wealthy believer at Corinth was also true for the poor Christian at Corinth. And that brings us to point four. Not only is there regularity and intentionality, but point four, biblical giving involves universality. Biblical giving involves universality. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed those Christians over there in the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of the week, each of you, nobody's excluded, each of you, is to put something aside and store it up. That means rich or poor, widow, kiddo, or financial mogul, the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker, each of you, is to put something aside and store it up. If God is graciously giving you income, you ought to share some. God is entrusting this to you. It's a stewardship to invest wisely. It is not a vault to hoard foolishly, nor a toy to squander selfishly. Money is a tool. How are you doing with this tool? This brings us to point five. Biblical giving involves individuality, not uniformity. And this is surprising to some Christians that maybe have grown up in a more legalistic background. But this is inherent in the text and we can't miss it. Biblical giving involves individuality, not uniformity. The Bible says, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so also are you to do. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put aside what? Something. He doesn't say a percentage. He doesn't say a specific dollar amount. He, doesn't, he says something. And store it up as he may prosper. I want you to notice there is no percentage demanded. There is no set amount prescribed. Grace giving is more than just mechanical tithing. It's following Jesus' leading. Each of us is to give something. So how do we know what's something we ought to be giving? Well, that's a good question. Well, how do we come to faith? 
The Bible says in Romans 10.9, we come to faith by confessing Jesus' lordship. So how then do we walk in faith, my friend? We walk in faith by submitting to Jesus' lordship. That is, his leading even over our giving. Therefore, we must keep in step with the Spirit on these matters. And we must not let our giving degenerate into something impersonal and mechanical. There is no magic number for the Christian giver. There is no set and certain percentage. There, there is no uh, specific demand of a certain amount. But there is guidance in this situation. And that's point six. Point six gives us a little bit more specific guidance. Biblical giving involves proportionality. Involves proportionality. Biblical giving involves proportionality. We see this at the end of verse 2. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put a something aside, store it up. How? As he may prosper. As he may prosper. That means the banker's largesse in his giving. Well, it pleases Jesus because he gives as God guides and provides. And yet the widow's meager might in her giving also pleases Jesus because she gives what she has. If God has blessed you, you should bless others. As the wisest man who ever lived said in Proverbs 11, Proverbs 11 says this, one man gives freely and yet gains even more. Another withholds unduly, but comes to poverty. Proverbs 11 says, A generous man will prosper, and he who refreshes others will himself be refreshed. Proverbs 11 says that people curse the man who hoards grain, but blessings crown him who's willing to sell. So our Lord Jesus says this in the New Testament. In Matthew 10, Jesus said, Freely have you received. Freely give. Freely have you received. Freely give. Friends, just as biblical giving involves universality, we all must do it. And, and, and at the same time, it involves a certain amount of individuality, not uniformity, because we are called to proportionality. And since we all have different proportions, don't we? There are seasons where we have a lot, and there are seasons where it's lean. Because there are different proportions, it means that our giving will look different. The question is, are we letting the Spirit lead us in obeying what he tells us. Here's what ought not be different. In its biblical direction number seven, regarding kingdom collections. Here's what ought not be different. Biblical giving ought to be orderly and ready. Biblical giving ought to be orderly and ready. Notice what Paul didn't say. Paul didn't say, wait to give until someone gives a high-pressure appeal well, wait until the church's special visual, perhaps of a thermometer, is getting close to the top so your gift puts them over the top. Uh, oh, Paul doesn't say, wait until they show a video that's sufficiently moving about the Jerusalem saints who are pitifully starving. No, the Holy Spirit had Paul write, 
On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up that as he may prosper, so there will be no collecting when I am coming. So there will be no collecting when I come. You see, too often our giving is, is haphazard. So kingdom projects, instead of receiving regular support, well, they struggle because the, the spigot of the financial fire hose is turned on full blast while it lasts, and then our interest turns to the next thing that burns, and this other thing is cut off entirely. Friends, our giving ought to be systematic, not sporadic or erratic. It ought to be thoughtful. It ought to be personal. It ought not be dictatorial where someone tells you how much you're supposed to give. And it ought not be merely emotional when you feel like giving. Now, once we set aside a sum and we invest it into the advancement of Christ's kingdom, who do we hand that gift over to? This is very practical. Who do we hand these kind of gifts over to? And sadly, there are many charlatans and hucksters in our day who some saints tragically hand Christ's money over to. There are too many prosperity preachers who are taking in God's money so they can purchase jets and live in mansions while claiming it's all for the furtherance of the ministry. And that brings us to principle eight. This, this little four-verse passage is just chock full of biblical direction regarding kingdom collection. And, and point eight is this. Biblical giving, it involves integrity and accountability. Biblical giving involves integrity and accountability. Look at verse 3. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. Uh, Paul says, we're going to send this gift to help the Jerusalem saints. It's got to get there. There's no postal system. How do I get this gift? I'm going to send believers that you trust who are trustworthy. I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry our gift to Jerusalem. Trusted people were entrusted to handle the funds. Hey, friends, the church in Corinth had a lot of problems. And they knew who they could trust with money, and they knew who they could not trust with money. And so they didn't entrust the untrustworthy with God's money. Christian ministries ought to handle their finances with integrity and accountability. And where that is lacking, you should be reluctant in giving. Where that is lacking, you should be reluctant in giving. Not to Jesus, give it somewhere. But if somewhere is not doing it with integrity and accountability, you might want to think about, is this still where I ought to be giving? There's a second principle tucked just in this one sentence. Notice Paul didn't dictate who they should select. He simply said, whoever you select and accredit by letter, I will send with the gift. And that's really interesting because as much as possible, what do we see? We see the Apostle Paul trying to get others involved in the work of God. He let the Corinthians work out who that would be so long as they had biblical principles from which to work. Paul wasn't a micromanager. He was always striving, though, to help God's people be more than mere bench warmers. He was trying to get other people involved in the work, people who were gifted for the work, people who the body recognized as suitable for the work, and he said, let's get them to work. All right, principle eight sets us straight on who to give through. 
That brings us to principle nine on our outlines, who to give to. Principle eight, who to give through. Principle nine on our outlines, who to give to. And principle nine is this. Biblical giving assists the needy, especially among the body. And it looks globally, not just locally. I'm going to say that again. Biblical giving assists the needy, but especially the body. And it looks globally, not just locally. We see this very clearly in verse 3. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to where it needs to go. Where is that? Jerusalem, in Judea, all the way, far away from the Isthmus of Corinth in sort of Greece, back to the Middle East, to Jerusalem. So why Jerusalem? The church in Jerusalem had experienced a severe famine that had necessitated an earlier, previous special round of giving. And it's recorded in Acts 11, around verse 27. In Acts eleven twenty-seven, the Bible says, Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them was named Agabus, and he stood up and he foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. And this took place during the reign of the emperor Claudius. So the disciples determined, every one of him, according to his ability, notice it was voluntary and individual, it wasn't mechanical, according to his ability to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Paul. So, so the Jerusalem church had experienced a tremendous famine and they had needs. But also the Jerusalem church had experienced intense persecution. This is mentioned repeatedly in the book of Acts, but it's also mentioned in places like 1 Thessalonians 2.14. 1 Thessalonians 2.14 where scripture says, For you brothers become imitators of the churches of God and Christ that are in Judea, that is these hard-pressed saints, for you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did. You see? So, so biblical giving assists the needy. Sometimes the needy are persecuted. Sometimes the needy are simply under-resourced. Now, often we narrowly focus this to the needy only within the realm of evangelistically. But it's interesting the scriptures tend to say the reverse. God tells us to be especially good to his children specifically. Galatians 6.10 declares, So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Yes, we ought to give to the needy. Proverbs 19.17 is clear. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and the Lord will repay him for his deed. But we should be especially helpful to the body. For when one part suffers... We all suffer. Now, we tend to attend to that which we can see. And while it is definitely true, charity begins at home, it is not true that charity ought to end there. We are to take the gospel not just to our neighbor on the corner in our Jerusalem. And a bit farther, uh, down several towns down to our Judea, and Samaria, but the Bible says we're to take the gospel to every place, to the very ends of the earth. 
And so biblical giving assists the needy. Those who need the gospel eternally and those who need assistance materially. But biblical giving is especially gracious to our brothers and sisters in Christ Jesus. The body of Christ sometimes needs help. And that's the way God has intended it to be. That the body of Christ sometimes needs help, so the body of Christ responds by giving help. Sometimes parts of the body of Christ need help in discipleship, in leadership development. Sometimes they need material assistance so they themselves can get on with discipleship and leadership development. Biblical giving assists the needy, especially among the body. It looks globally, not just locally. It's not either or, it's both and, according to the Word of God. Why? Because point 10 is true. Because point 10 is true. Biblical giving demonstrates the essential unity of the global body of Christ standing in solidarity with our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's a mouthful. Let's try that again. Biblical giving demonstrates the essential unity of the global body of Christ standing in solidarity with our brothers and sisters in Christ. We see this clearly in our passage in several portions. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the church of Galatia. So the Galatian church was going to have to help the Judean church. So you also are to do. What was true for the Galatians was true for the Corinthians. On the first day of the week, each of you is to put something aside. Verse 3, and when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry it where? To Jerusalem, where the need was. I want you to notice the inherent interdependence within this biblical assistance. The church in Galatia and the church in Aegea, which is where Corinth was, were both assisting the church in Judea. The younger churches that had some means sent help to the established church that no longer had it. Just as the church in Antioch in Acts 13 sent missionaries, so there was a church in Galatia and there was a church in Corinth because there didn't used to be until God used Antioch to send missionaries in their direction. Now, these newer churches in Galatia and in Corinth, well, they sent aid to the very oldest church, the church in Jerusalem. What was true for the Corinthians? What was true for the Galatians? Well, it was also true for the Romans. Turn with me in the Word of God to the left of Corinthians to Romans 15.25. Romans 15.25. And you're going to see what was true for the Galatians, was true for the Corinthians, was true for the Romans. Romans 15 starting at verse 25. Romans 15, 25 says, At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem to bring aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Acacia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed, here's what's really interesting, the Holy Spirit says, they owe it to them. They owe it to them, giving as an obligation to another Christian in a different situation. Indeed, they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles had come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought to be of service to them in material blessings. When therefore I have completed this and have delivered them what has been collected, I will leave 
for Spain by way of you. Friends, not only is there an interdependence among biblical churches, but there was also a sense of indebtedness according to the Holy Spirit. Why do we need to send missionaries to Israel and the Middle East and to Europe? Haven't those people already had the gospel? Well, wait a minute. How'd the gospel make it here to New Jersey? The gospel, according to the Bible, well, it started in Jerusalem. And then it branched out to Asia Minor, to what we call modern Turkey. And then it moved to the cities in our passage in what is modern Greece. And then it penetrated Rome itself. And then it moved north in the Reformation, and it was powerfully present in Central Europe, specifically in Geneva to the Swiss, and and in Germany under Luther. And then what happened? God moved it providentially. Where? He moved it to England. And it took root deeply for a season in jolly old England. And and from England, it went all around the world because the sun never set on their empire and the gospel went with them. And it came to the new world, our world. It came to New Jersey. Because there was first a Jersey, and if you look at it on a map, it's a British island in the English Channel, Jersey. Now, we may be named for an island, but according to the Bible, no church is an island. We ought to strengthen and encourage one another. We ought to buttress the witness of one another. And so just as we partner down the street, down the hill, to the next town down, to our our brothers and sisters at Bethany Evangelical Free Church in West Orange, and we instead don't hoard our resources, we share our resources... So we also partner with church planters in France and gospel hospitalists in China. We partner with Bible translators in the Middle East. We partner with missionary aviators in Africa. Uh, Biblical giving demonstrates the essential unity of the global body of Christ standing in solidarity with our brothers and sisters in Christ. That's how it's supposed to work. The fact that the predominantly Gentile churches of Europe, that's who's mentioned in our passage, collected money for the predominantly Jewish Christians in Jerusalem showed the nature of the gospel could break down racial and social barriers. The gospel brings solidarity where the world brings fragmentation and competition. I want you to remember Romans 10, verses 12 through 13. For there is no distinction between Jew and Gentile. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The gospel unites what the world divides. Remember Ephesians 2, beginning at verse 12. And remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one, Jew and Gentile, and has broken down in his flesh 
the dividing wall of hostility. Now, if we're going to show solidarity and unity that is going to then require that you and I have some, some flexibility, we're not always so good about this, it's going to require, if we're going to have unity and solidarity to meet needs as they arise, particularly amongst the body, that's going to require some flexibility, which is exactly what we see in biblical direction number 11 concerning kingdom collections. Biblical direction number 11 is this. Biblical giving involves flexibility. Biblical giving involves flexibility. I know many generous givers who are enormously rigid givers, and I wonder, where is the room for the Spirit in this? Because biblical giving involves some measure of flexibility. Verse 4, if it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. Meaning Paul was saying, you're going to send some people, and if you think I need to go too, I'm going to stop what I'm doing. And what's he doing? He's planting churches. He's strengthening Christians. He's taking the gospel where no one had ever heard it. He's doing absolutely critical gospel ministry that perhaps no one else in the world was as good at or as gifted for as the Apostle Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. And he said, you know what? If it seems advisable in this situation to help with the delegation to assist the Christians back in Jerusalem, I'll go also. I'll stop what I'm doing. I'll leave what I want to do to do what needs to be done. Paul was willing to inconvenience himself to stop his missionary journeys to attend to a ministry of mercy for the brethren. Helping the brethren factored in to his missionary endeavors and calling. Indeed, there's one scholar who wrote this. He said, well, you know, if in A.D. 38 was indeed the date of Acts 11's assistance for the first famine that Paul and Barnabas were sent to help in. And A.D. 55 is roughly when 1 Corinthians was written. This scholar writes then, part of Paul's abounding in the work of the Lord that he mentioned in chapter 15 last Sunday, part of Paul's abounding in the work of the Lord would mean that Paul had almost 20 years from A.D. 38 to A.D. 55 of assisting in strategic relief efforts to hard-pressed saints. This scholar went so far as to say that perhaps next to Paul's evangelistic work, this was Paul's highest priority because he requests help for needy Christians in Galatians, in Romans, in 1 Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians, and to the Macedonians, it is mentioned as well. Is helping Christ's church a priority for us? If so, that's going to require some flexibility from us, isn't it? And that brings us to point 12. Biblical giving ultimately involves something personal and incarnational. Biblical giving ultimately involves something personal and incarnational. Verse 3, And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem, Verse 4, if it seems advisable that I personally should go also, those other people, they will accompany me. While everyone was asked to give, some needed to go. Everyone was asked to give, but only some, and some did, some needed to go. Paul ultimately went. Members of the church of Corinth were also 
sent. Friends, God works incarnationally in ministry, doesn't he? When God wanted to reach the world, he became a man. He incarnated and inhabited the situation. Uh, I can't wait till we can meet together again and, and, and we can hug each other and see each other. There's something missing in virtual church. Don't become addicted to bedside Baptist and virtual church. That isn't God's plan. When God spoke to humanity, he wrote two tablets and they immediately rejected him. He had to do it again. He wrote us a book that we constantly ignore. And so what he does is he puts truth in flesh and he sends his prophets and his people and his preachers and his pastors and his own son. Because ministry is inherently personal and incarnational. We cannot do it all on the web. We can do it now for a season because we have a reason. But it isn't the mainstay and main way. And our addiction and infatuation with technology takes away the central pillar of the incarnational nature of ministry. And we need to be careful that we don't make slick videos replace being the hands and feet of Christ. Or people aren't going to meet Christ. They're just going to turn off slick videos. So, in our situation on biblical direction regarding kingdom collection, writing checks has a place. Everyone was supposed to bring something. They were to be intentional. They were to be personal. It was to be proportional. They were to plan ahead. But even though writing checks have a place, someone must go and be the hands and feet of Christ. How can they hear without a preacher? And how will they know unless someone will go? That means someone has to leave where we're happy and comfortable and go to where it may not be happy and may be very uncomfortable. We need to have some flexibility in God's ability to adjust our routines to the very trajectory of the life he has planned for his glory. It's not our life, it's his life. We asked him to be our Lord, and that was the trade. He saved us that we can be objects of his glory and no longer objects of his wrath. I want to ask you a question, Christian. Jesus died for his church. Why are we so unwilling to live for his church? Jesus died for his church. Why are we so reluctant to live for his church? And that brings us to our final biblical direction regarding kingdom collection. And that is this, verse, uh, principle 13 is this, biblical giving is a priority. Biblical giving is a priority, my friends. Multiple churches were asked, Galatian and Corinthian, as I directed the church in Galatia, so I direct you, church in Corinth. Every week, it was a priority. On the first day of every week, they were to do this. It was something for which they had to be intentional, proportional, and orderly. Each of you is to put aside something and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. It would involve not just fundraising, it would also involve people sending. I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem, and if it seems advisable that I should go also, they can accompany me. Friends, the gospel is God's free gift. But the reality is ministry costs money. And so God urges us as his people, he's going to give us all the things that we need to give generously. Make sure that when you give, the people you give it to use it wisely. 
And consider if God is maybe asking more from you than just a portion of your salary. Maybe He is calling you and your family into service. Among, not necessarily us, but perhaps even to some far-flung corner of the kingdom that currently sits in gospel darkness awaiting for an on-fire witness about Jesus. How will they hear without a preacher? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to passages like this and we're amazed that such a small portion of Scripture has such a large and detailed level of understanding about a matter that we easily do based on tradition and emotion. And yet you've given us a a wealth of of Scripture. There are 13 principles in just these four verses. There are probably more that I missed or didn't have time to emphasize. Help us, Lord, reshape our thinking around your Lordship. Help us to say, yes, Lord. There, There really is no ability to say no and Lord in the same sentence. If you say no, then he's not Lord. And so, Lord, please be Lord of our giving. Help us to be flexible. Help us to be intentional. Help us to be proportional. Help us to be generous as you are generous. For you so loved the world, you gave your very best. You gave Jesus, your one and only begotten Son, that no one should perish, but rather that we might have everlasting life. You didn't just drop an asset you incarnated. You came and dwelt among us. You experienced all the indignities and travesties that is life and broken humanity, and you did it so that we could not just have an example, but that we could have salvation. Lord, may we follow Jesus' example, and, and in our life this week, and in our chances this week, in our, in, our, in our trajectory this year in ministry, whatever that looks like, whether that's eventually teaching Sunday school or serving in brigade and battalion and pioneer girls, whether that's meeting together, praying for the saints, I, whatever it is that you've called us to do, may we do it with all of our strength and all of our heart and all of our mind and all of our soul and all of our spirit. May we do it as unto the Lord whether it's the mundane of eating and drinking, may we do it to the glory of God, or whether it's something that's more seemingly like our chips are all in. If you call us to, you know, sell our house and move house and go to some place that yesterday we could hardly pronounce to a people we didn't really know or care about, but you put that burden on our hearts, we pray, Lord, that you would do that, that your church around the world would not be content to be fat, dumb, and happy, but that we would be the army of God and we would be deployed as the king sends us. And Lord, if you don't call us, there is no shame in that. Speaking recently to a Christian who really wanted a call to ministry, but you instead made him uh, an executive and you've given him means and you've given him opportunities to share Christ with people in circles that probably I wouldn't easily get. And Lord, we ought not look over at the person to our left and say, I wish I was an eye or I wish I was a hand, but we ought to be whatever it is you've called us to be to the glory of God, that if we should speak, that we should speak as the very oracles of God. If we serve, we should serve with the very strength of God, that at the end of the day, people might know the one true God. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.